Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed, and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message. You have heard it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny, heading adultery. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. Heading divorce. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Heading oaths. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfil to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Heading eye for eye. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them for two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Heading love for enemies. 
You have heard that it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? And not even the tax collect are not even the tax collectors doing that. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? And now verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This indeed is the word of the Lord, and Nick is going to now bring us the message God has put on his heart for us. So I'll say good luck. <laughs> um, yeah, come on. Uh, yeah, look, this, is, this does have to be one of the hardest sermons um, I'll preach this year, this, this might, so far. Um, gosh, this isn't how I expected to start. But we'll hit some really tough issues uh, and speak into issues that are live issues in the church today. Um, I, and I, I just want to call that out and um, uh, kick off in prayer because that's what, what we really all need to do. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is powerful and relevant, sharper than a double-edged sword, cutting bone and sinew straight to our hearts. And Lord, we pray that we would open up yourself, uh, open up ourselves, sorry, to what you would have to say to us. That I, as the, as the preacher, would open myself up to hear what you have to say to me. In all this, Lord, we pray not for information, but for transformation by your Holy Spirit working through us, working through your word, working through your servant. We, we thank you um, and uh, pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We are facing an ethical crisis in the world. The definition of what is right and wrong, I think, has never been more fuzzy. Um, recently on, on Valentine's Day, there was this big movement of um, uh, couples going on to um, uh, dating apps and things like that and asking for a third person to be their, um, be their Valentine. And that being accepted and celebrated as normal. Um, there's global wars and strong opinions on, on all sides of pretty much every conflict. The church is no better an ethical crisis in the church, the church that has been standing on this moral uh, mountaintop, um, you know, preaching to the world what is right and what is wrong, but behind closed doors doing terrible things. One, um, one particular movement is the purity culture uh, from um, the early... I know, 90s, 2000s. This is, the, this is the kind of culture and teaching I grew up in. 
um, books like this one, Every Young Man's Battle, um, that kind of that advocates for um, against lust, which is a bad thing, but advocating uh, either complete avoidance or replacement. So the answer to, to lusting is just bounce your eyes. Don't, don't engage at all. Just move, move away. Deal with the problem by removing it. Or deal with the problem by telling women how they should dress. Or deal with the problem by getting married and, um, and fulfilling that desire that way. And, and even in this book uh, that's written, you know, to com- combat lust is some of the most graphic depiction and objectifying uh, depictions of women out there. There's something deeper that needs to be addressed. We're in an ethical crisis, an ethical meaning the philosophy of what is right and wrong and what drives our behavior, why we do the things that we do and what determines if it's right or wrong. And this is where we kind of landed last week when in uh, Matthew 5, verse 21, Jesus says, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And a righteousness that from their understanding comes from following the law comes from obeying God and and it raises the question for the Israelites and for those listening to Jesus sermon is how do we in, how do we relate to the law how do we interact with God's law God's commands to us what's our approach to following God's law or to ask the same question in a different way what is the foundation of our ethics how do we determine right from wrong And in our passage today, Jesus uncovers the way the Pharisees and the teachers of the law have been interpreting and applying God's law. And then he unpacks what God's intent for those laws are. So just to give a quick outline of where we're going, and um, and yeah, again, fair warning, we're going to go deep today, is uh, first taking a step back and looking at um, how people today approach ethics and approach God's law, particularly within the church, and then uh, and then going in uh, to look at Jesus' teaching one at a time, and there's there's five um, instructions or six. One's kind of split in two, and really my goal is to unpack what is at the heart, foreshadowing pun intended, of following God's law, of God's uh, what it means to truly be a transformed disciple. And, uh, and if you didn't catch it, it is the heart, <laughs> the intended uh, foreshadowing pun. Um, and today, last week, I taught, you know, I said I was in debt to uh, John Stott. Today, I'm in debt to Tim Keller and some of his writing around this issue. And so jumping in, what is behind um, uh, how we approach God's law? What is behind our ethics? And within the church, there's two main ways uh, that we, two wrong ways of interpreting law, of, of uh, following God and, and his way to live. And they are legalism and liberalism. Uh, Tim Keller says antinomialism. I have no idea what that means, so let's go with liberalism. Talking about legalism, this is setting the bar really, really high. Here's the standard, and we've got to reach it. And so this is things like the purity culture of uh, enforcing rules upon rules upon rules to follow, to kind of deal with the issue by just 
doing and restricting ourselves and oppressing ourselves or oppressing other people in order to fulfill certain standards, fulfill certain laws. Yeah, and we've seen a lot of this within the church. And we've seen a lot of this in different ways. It can be impressive. So imposing these laws and restrictions, these extra standards on others, creating rule upon rule to enforce or even a, a culture that we need to live up to. And something I've, I've experienced a lot talking to people who have left the church, they've left the church because they say, I could never live up to what everyone expected of me. Those people leaving this church. I could never live up to what people expected from me. There's a form, a spirit of legalism um, that, that's manipulating uh, God's law. And, and, and the, there is another side to this. It can be manipulative in the other way of, of living up to a certain standard and then coercing God um, through obedience service so that he's in our debt. Of course, God should love me because look at all the things that I'm doing and, and living out and serving and being. Uh, here's, here's a quote from Tim Keller, and it's a little bit long, but I think it's really helpful. He says, legalism is far more than the conscious belief that I can be saved by good works. It's a web of attitudes of heart and character. It's the thought that God's love for us is conditioned on something we can be or do. It's the attitude that I offer certain things, my ethical goodness, my relative avoidance of deliberate sin, my faithfulness to the Bible, my service in the church, that supports Christ's work and contributes to God's goodwill to me. A legalistic spirit leads to being ungenerous, harsh, overly sensitive to criticism, deeply insecure, highly entitled, and jealous of others. Because our sense of personal identity and worth has become entwined with performance and its recognition rather than being rooted and grounded in Christ and his unmerited grace. So that's Tim's description of legalism. The other approach to following Jesus is liberalism. Of the sense, liberalism, the sense of freedom, of freedom separation from uh, the restriction and the oppression of the law. It's, it's the opposite of legalism. It's setting the bar so low that there is no standard to live up to. God loves me anyway. Why wouldn't me? Why wouldn't he? Or it could be reinterpreting the law to, to understand in a way that suits us, that benefits us. Keller says this, liberalism is, is too, is more than just the belief that I don't have to obey God's law. It's the thought that God loves, sorry, it's a thought that since God loves me, regardless of my record, he doesn't mind how morally or immorally I live. It's the attitude that God accepts me as I am, and he only wants me to be myself. You know, as long as I get the gist of the law, or the letter of the law, then it's all good. It doesn't matter beyond that. And liberalism similarly leads to the same sense of superiority as if we've transcended the law. We're above all that. We're not opposed or restricted by that. We're above others. It leads to a profound sense of personal justice. What is right and wrong comes from within and how it affects me. And Tim says, uh, often it can... It can lead to the belief that the only way to be a free person 
it's to separate ourselves from the law altogether and separate ourselves from the belief of God altogether. Now, legalism and liberalism are both a form of self-worship. Liberalism is I obey, therefore I am loved. Liberalism is I don't need to obey, I'm loved anyway. Both of those worldviews, both of those ethical frameworks, what's at the center of them? I am. Me. The self. The story of the Bible, the gospel puts forward a different ethical framework, a different story. God loves me and I'm his child. Where God is the center. God is at the center. What Jesus offers us is a different foundation of ethics, gospel transformation. Right? It's not about a high bar or a low, low bar or a bar or a standard at all. It's about a person who lived a perfect life and f- in entirely fulfilled the, the, the conditions of the law and then offered his life, his righteousness for us. We're saved by grace, unmerited favor from God through faith, through the work of Jesus Christ. He takes our broken, corrupt, self-centered hearts and transforms us from the inside out. We spoke about this last week. This is where we ended last week. It's it's not about legalism. It's not about liberalism, but God transforming our hearts to love God and to love His law. And we live out our identity in Jesus through His salvation of us, His transformation in us from the inside out, not from the outside in. I do and therefore I am, but the inside out, I am. Therefore, I am, I do. So then, how do we see this worked out in Jesus' teaching? He then works through uh, five laws, and particularly the Pharisees and teach of the laws' interpretation of those laws. And what does it mean to live as a disciple of Jesus? What does it mean to live with a transformed heart? As we go through these laws, we'll see that the Pharisees have been trying to fulfill them either, either legalistically or liberally. But Jesus shows that obedience starts and ends with the heart. It starts and ends with the heart. So let's have a look uh, at these things. There's lots to cover. And I do want to do this justice, but I also do want to get home in time for lunch. Um, so we'll see how we go. Sausage sizzle. Oh, yeah, there you go. Uh, so it doesn't matter how long ago because we've got lunch straight after. <laughs> Jesus says, You've heard it been said to the people of long ago, you shall not murder. But anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Oh, sorry, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, or is answerable to the court. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in the danger of the fire of hell. So Jesus is speaking to the, the old and the, the, the teachers of the law. Their approach to this law is don't physically murder anyone. You know, as long as you don't murder someone, that's fine. 
And it, like we, we've all got this attitude to an extent, like, oh, at least I didn't kill anyone. But Jesus doesn't, Jesus says it, it's not about the physical act. It's about what's going in your heart. He says, I tell you that anyone who is angry towards a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, which is a, a word uh, that most likely means like empty-headed or like imbecile, or uh, anyone who says you fool will be, be, is answerable to the court in danger of the fire of hell. Murder doesn't start with an action. It starts with a feeling. Um, I'm um, in another indebtedness I have is a guy, Sky Jathani, in this book, which is just a short devotional on the Sermon on the Mount. What if Jesus was serious? What if Jesus was serious? It's a big deal. Um, but he's got a couple of graphics in this first one. Uh, is really helpful. It shows like the the progression of of um, uh, emotional engagement and the degree of hate. Something might start off as annoyance, and then it gets into anger, and then it's rage. But then there's contempt, and contempt is where the person is dead to you. You don't feel anything towards that person, and although they may be still living and out there, you've killed them in your heart. Jesus says. Murder isn't about actions, it's about feeling. And so dealing with contempt, dealing with anger, it's, it's in the heart. It's got it's to be dealt with from within. Jesus says, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, if you're coming to church uh, and, and you're offering your gift, then rem- and rem- remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversaries taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. What Jesus says here, and it's, again, quite a, 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 um, an exaggerated illustration, like, even if you were to come to bring an offer at the altar, which is, for a lot of Jew, Jews, is an everyday activity, but you remember that you've got a conflict with someone or you're angry against someone or someone's angry against you, he says, go deal with that first. What God cares more about is not our offering and our service and what we you know, might do, but how are we treating other people? What is going in, on in our hearts? And so he, his instruction is go deal with it. Do it quickly. Be quick to forgive, quick to make amends. You know, we so easily hold on to hurt and let it feed our anger towards others. That's not what God wants. That's not what a transformed heart does. Don't hold on to forgiveness. Don't hold it ransom waiting for the other person to come to the table before you make the first step. Be quick to forgive, quick to make amends, be quick to reconcile, because the goal is not resolving issues, but reconciling people. And um, 
one resource uh, that we will be looking into and, and doing some training as a church is uh, PeaceWise and, and peacemaking strategies. I've got a whole heap of these flyers which kind of outline a, an approach to peacemaking, which is more about the individual than the practice. Um, there's a whole heap on there. Uh, it'd be really helpful if everyone grabs one and reads and meditates through it. Um, but this is something that as a church we need to get better at. We need to get better at peacemaking. Um, and we need the spirit to help us do that. The next thing, um, uh, Jesus addresses adultery. He says, you've heard it been said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who's looked at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, this is another time the Pharisees have, have warped the law. As long as you don't sleep with another person's wife, another man's wife, go for it. Go for your life. And some, some historians suggest that even at this time, um, like sex with lower class citizens was fine. Sex with people who weren't married was fine. As long as you don't, as, you know, as, you, as long as you won't disobey the law to the letter, you don't have sex with someone else's wife. It's free reign. Now, Jesus says, no, no. You look at a woman lustfully. If you look at another person lustfully in your heart, take what is not yours internally. You're committing adultery. You're breaking what God has made to be sacred. We're made in the image of God and God instigated marriage, gave us marriage and sex to be something to be celebrated and, and, um, and to benefit the, the two people in marriage as a celebration both of God's and a demonstration of God's relationship with his people, but uh, an honouring of being made in the image of God and, and being united as one flesh. To, be, to compromise that in any other way is to, to break what's sacred. We're made in the image of God. Now, where, where does this problem happen? What's the issue? Another um, doodle from Jathani is who is responsible for my lust? Who is responsible for my lust? Is it, is it women and, who, and, and you know, all how they dress and all that thing? And then if that's the answer, then the solution is one, either women need to change how they dress or we'll just go hang out in a men's club. Is it culture and society and like the sexualized society? Then the answer is simple, just like withdraw and isolate from society. Or is the problem in me? And if that's the case, then I need a transformed heart. I need a transformed heart. Now, the first two of those three, that's purity culture, that, you know, that where we've been through within the church. The other, the other option is there is no problem. Go for it. There's parts of the church that have embraced that as well. But Jesus says the problem starts in our hearts. If we look at another person lustfully, we're committing adultery. We're breaking God's law. So how am I dealing with it? How am I dealing it? Jesus gives some pretty extreme um, uh, 
instructions. He says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, throughout church history, there's some people who have followed this quite literally, gouged eyes out, cut arms off. But Jesus is using hyperbole. He's using some extreme examples to, to demonstrate how serious this is. Now, the flip side of that response is we can say Jesus is using hyperbole. Obviously, we don't need to respond to this or do anything because he's just being overly dramatic. But Jesus has a clear point to make. If there's something that is leading you into lust, get rid of it. In Jewish culture, the eye um, is representative of intent and desire and hands representative of action. If something is enticing you to lust, get rid of it. If something is enabling you, then get rid of it. How are we feeding our hearts? How are we guarding our hearts? Let's get specific. There's um, things like getting phones out of the bedroom. Phones out and technology out of the bedroom. Computers in public areas. So there's accountability. Um, this, this was an issue I, I wrestled with and struggled with as a teenager, as I'm sure many people one of the best things my parents ever did was one time banning me uh, from using my laptop for a month. And you know, I was in year 11, year 12. It was a big call and very inconvenient for me, but absolutely amazing uh, for my health. Um, how are we talking about this issue with our kids? This is, a, this is, a, this is an epidemic in young people today the exposure and the, the sheer amount of content? Are we responding with legalism? Just get everything out, cut everything off. And there is some, some need for action. We were responding with liberalism. Oh, it's all right. Everyone, everyone looks at porn. Everyone does it. It doesn't matter. No one knows about it. It's not harming anyone. Or we were responding in prayer and seeking what's going on in the heart. Now, sometimes this will take more work. Often it does take a lot of work. And, and counseling and, and uh, more professional support to deal with addictions and habits and, and even the, the, the mental health impacts of lust and these things. But are we willing to do the work? Are we willing to open ourselves up to a God that loves us and will forgive us? Ask him to change our hearts. What is the pursuit of our hearts? Is it justifying, enabling, hiding? Or is it pursuing what God would want for us? Jesus moves on and he talks about divorce. And this is another really tricky issue to talk about. He says, it's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, anyone who divorces white except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. 
Now, the, the Pharisees' approach to divorce here was very liberal. If there's at any point you get fed up with your wife or, um, or someone else comes along who's more appealing, just give her a certificate of divorce and move on and pursue your heart's desire. Now, divorce is a real tough issue and a a big issue in the church. I would like to clearly say that there is accommodation for divorce in Scripture. It's certainly not a good thing. And a helpful way to understand divorce is divorce is the death of a marriage. It's the the death of a marriage. And, you know, even even here Jesus gives an exception of... um, you know, except for unfaithfulness or except uh, for sexual morality. And there are many ways to be unfaithful. And situation where separation and divorce is unfortunately necessary. And sometimes the marriage is dead well before divorce is, um, is finalized. But Jesus is not talking about those situations. He's talking, he's talking about lust. It's, it's, this comes under the same law, the same issue he's talking about. People who would just drop their wife to pursue someone else. And the Pharisees have, have made a legal system where that was quite easy. And what is Jesus saying? If you're doing that, you are destroying her life. You're making her, like the NIV translation is really helpful. You're making her into a victim of adultery. Many people read this and, and think if you get divorced and then you get remarried, like you become a perpetrator of adultery. That's not what Jesus is saying. It's by divorcing your wife and going and chasing someone else. You're, you're making her out to be a victim. You are abandoning her. You're destroying her life. And this, this goes for, for men and women today. Are we just looking for a way out of a marriage when things get tough and things get inconvenient, things get hard? Or there are, there are other options or other things that are enticing us? Or are we looking for a way to preserve and protect what God has given us in marriage? There's a lot more to say, but I think we'll keep moving. Starts in the heart. The next thing Jesus talks about is oaths and promises and truth telling. He says again, "You've heard that it's been said to people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill the law, the fulfill to the Lord the vows you've made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven or by God's throne or by earth, or for it is His footstool, or Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great King. Do not swear by your head, for you cannot even make one hair white or black." Now, what, what he's saying is kind of com- confusing. But from, from reading that, what, what it seems to be the case is that people are making oaths that the responsibility of breaking doesn't actually fall on them. So I can make an oath and I could say, I swear to God, God is my witness that I will do this. Now, if I, if I break that oath, I've put all responsibility on God, on something that I don't control. If I say, if, if I were to... If I were not do this, not break my promise, or if I were to break my promise, you know, turn all my hair white. 
I'm going to break my promise. I have no control whether my <laughs> whatever color my head it, hair is. What Jesus says, stop making oaths and, and hiding behind you know, other power, shifting blame, hiding the truth. But be honest. He says all you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Now, hiding the truth, you know, sometimes we don't like telling the truth because there's a lot at stake. There's people's opinions of us. There's our status, our popularity, our jobs, our like relationships are at stake. And what is a lie? It's sacrificing truth at the altar of self. We lie so that we can protect ourselves. But Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything else comes from the father of lies. A transformed heart is one that tells the truth. Next, Jesus talks about retaliation. You've heard it been saying, an eye for an eye, a tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, the Pharisees and teachers of the law have, have taken this eye for eye, tooth for tooth and said, you know, whenever someone wrongs you, wrong them back. Bible says eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. But of course, they've taken that way out of context to suit their own, suit their own desire, suit their own justice. The, where this passage is taken from, the situation is when uh, a pregnant woman is injured and the, the fetus is affected, loses an eye, loses a tooth, loses life. And this law was given to the Israelites to defend the honour and justice of the, the voiceless party, the one who is helpless and, and vulnerable, uh, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law have taken that and made it a re retributive ethic for themselves. Seeking justice for yourself. Someone hits you, hit them back. But Jesus gives an alternate response. It's not about justice, but about grace. Now, um, he talks about, you know, turning the other cheek. When someone slaps uh, someone, in, in, particularly in that culture, it's about humiliation. Jesus says, turn the other cheek. If you uh, take your tunic, the kind of the cultural inference is uh, someone sues you and takes your like, underwear, takes your um, the, the, the tunic from the lower, from below um, your coat. I don't know where I'm going with that. Um, but the point is, someone steals your precious property. Don't fight and retaliate. Why have they taken it? Give them your coat as well. Takes you a mile. It's probably talking about conscripted labor. So soldiers of things would capture uh, people and say, all right, come carry this for me. So it's unjust. Um, he says, "Take go for two. And then when he talks about people borrowing or, or asking... Um, 
asking for things is probably in reference to a situation where they wouldn't lend it to you. They wouldn't uh, let you borrow things or they wouldn't give you things when you ask. Now, I've heard a sermon where a preacher said, this stuff doesn't actually apply. If someone sues you, you can lawyer up and defend yourself. And I, I think it's, it's not actually about the action. It's about the heart. What are we out to achieve? Retribution, justice for ourselves. That the wrongs against us are made right. We have such a tendency to fight for our own rights that we forget that apart from Christ, we have nothing. And in Christ, we have everything. And I, I, I hear the response and I feel it as well. But they humiliated me. Jesus understands. Jesus understands, but we're not defined by public perception. They stole my cloak. Jesus understands, but we're not defined by our possessions. They forced my hand. Jesus understands, we're not defined by what we do. They hurt me deeply. Jesus understands, but we're not defined by our hurt. They would never show this kind of favor to me. Jesus understands, yet he shows amazing grace to us, far beyond any one of us deserve. Now, none of us who are in Christ Jesus, who are saved by Jesus, have limited grace that we don't have enough to extend to others, to share to others. All of us have been shown love and grace far more than we deserve far more than we could ever share with others. The heart of what Jesus is talking about here is, is seeking humility, putting others before ourselves, having that heart attitude of being poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The last law Jesus talks about is love for enemies. He says, you've heard it been said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, love your neighbors in the Old Testament is in the Jewish scriptures. Hate your enemy. That's not anywhere. That's been added. And really, who doesn't operate like that? Of course I love my friends. Of course I don't like my enemies. Like, that's just an easy way of living. And that is a point Jesus makes. It's like even the Gentiles and the pagans operate like this. What Jesus says is love your enemies. Do what God does. We were all enemies of God, yet He showed us love far beyond we deserve. Far beyond we deserve. To love your enemies. Do what God does because you are His child and a child acts like their father. The true mark of a transformed heart is the ability to love the unlovable. true mark of a transformed heart is the ability to love our enemies. Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. Prayer being one of the ultimate acts of love, of asking God to care for someone. Pray for those who persecute you. Pray for your enemies. It all begins in the heart. And then Jesus finishes this whole section with that verse. Be perfect. What a command. Be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
it's a callback to how this passage started. Our, our, our righteousness must surpass, must exceed that of the Pharisees. He's not talking about a more active, wider righteousness, but deeper. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The way that command is achieved is not through action, but through dependence. Jesus was perfect. He lived a perfect life. And then he was crucified. He was judged and punishment as one who was guilty. And it was our guilt and our sin that he took on and he paid for. And then we get to experience that divine exchange of he became sin who knew no sin so that we might become his righteousness. We might be perfect, not because of our action, but because who has saved us, who our trust is in. And Jesus gives these instructions to his disciples of how do we live that out? Our actions, our, our framework for ethical decisions doesn't come from legalism or liberalism. It doesn't come with what we do. It comes from our hearts. We need transformed hearts. All of us. You might be thinking, I can't forgive that person. I can't let go of that hurt. I can't let go of my anger. I can't stop looking at porn. I can't see a way to, to persist and persevere in this marriage. I can't risk my honor by telling the truth. I can't let that person go unpunished. I can't possibly love that person. You know what? You're right. You can't. I can't. Jesus can. And he has. We need that divine exchange, our sin for Christ's righteousness. We need the work of the Spirit to transform our hearts. That's what the story of the Bible promised in Ezekiel, in Jeremiah, that God would come and one would come who would transform our hearts. No longer would we just do it by rote obedience, but actually desire from the innermost part of our beings to follow God, to live like Him, to be like Him. We desperately need the work of the Holy Spirit to come and to eradicate that part of our hearts that's indulging in anger, in lust, in lies, in selfishness, part of a heart that makes everything about us. We need God to give us a heart that longs for Jesus in everything. That's satisfied in Jesus in everything. So that's how we're going to end, inviting the Spirit to come and transform our hearts. What we're going to do, we're going to have another song. Um, and we're going to, yeah, facilitate prayer a bit differently. I'll ask the elders and, and some of the members of our intercessory prayer team to, um, I'm not really sure how we'll do this, but like come towards 
the edges of the room and maybe outside as well during the song. And if anyone wants specific prayer for a specific issue, you feel that tension, you feel that pressure of, I can't do this, I can't act like, I can't live up to that standard. I need a transformed heart. Now's the time to ask someone to pray with you that God would transform your heart, that He would do that work in you to restore you, save you, to form you into His likeness. So we'll do that. There'll be a time during the song and then after the service as well. And at any point, if you want to reach out to me uh, and, and have a discussion and, you know, catch up and talk about these issues and or any one of our elders or, um, or there's the prayer team and there's many people um, willing to pray with you to chat about these things. Or there might even be issues uh, that will be worthwhile seeking professional support. We've got uh, LifeWell we're connected with in Mount Barker. Or there's other counselling services that we can, we can um, share. But why don't we do that? We'll worship, I'll pray in a second, and then open up a time to open up ourselves to God's work in us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your word. Lord, there's lots in here that is hard to hear, but we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that it's not up to us to reach this standard because that is just impossible. We thank you that Jesus did and has done that for us. Lord, we pray against the spirit of legalism, of liberalism, of, of enforcing a culture or, or a law that we feel like we have to live up to in order to belong here. That's just not true. We belong because we are in Jesus, because of Jesus, because of Jesus. Keep reminding us that, Lord. Keep reminding us, Lord. And, and I know uh, that we are all struggling with something. We're all wrestling with some issue. Lord, I thank you that it's a wrestle that we're not just giving ourselves over to it. We thank you for the work you're doing in our hearts, even now, bringing conviction, bringing things to mind, stuff that we know we need to deal with, know we need your spirit to work in us. God, I just pray your Holy Spirit would enter in, do the work that you need to do, that only you can do. Lord, transform our hearts. Make us like your son, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Hills Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to partner with us in developing and equipping passionate disciples who love God, love people, and boldly share the gospel, you can do that at hillsbaptist.com forward slash giving. We pray this message has empowered you to live and love more like Jesus. Have an amazing day.